was a requested offertory by me. I just wanted to hear a mighty fortress on an organ. Haven't heard that in a while. And uh, it kind of helps to think about a mighty fortress as we come to this message today. Also, I'm really throwing things off here, but Gerald, if you could find the second verse of uh, Behold Our God and just put it back up on the screen for a second. Can you do that? I don't know why today everything just sort of hit me as we sang stuff and all. You know, I think the essence of what I'm going to talk about this morning is summed up in this verse. Who has given counsel to the Lord and who can question any of his words? Now, that is a confession that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, all-everything. And, and the question is, who has given him counsel? I mean, the Scriptures ask that. Paul asked that in Romans. Who are you to, to, to give counsel to God? And, and that's exactly what our nation and, our, and the church today, in a great, to a great extent, is attempting to do. It's attempting to say, God... We want you to know we live in a modern day. You weren't around, haha, in this modern day, and you just don't understand how things are. And so we seek to give counsel to God. Wait, it went away. I'm not through. <laughs> Who can question any of his words? We're going to look at his words this morning from Scripture and what he has said in his word about even our day. Next slide. Who can teach the one who knows all things? Who can give him counsel? Who can teach him? Who can fathom all his wondrous deeds? Next slide. Behold our God. He is seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Thank you. You know, some, I had several people ask me this week when I wrote my Grace Notes article and they read it and said, I'm, I'm departing from John this week. Because I want to deal with a subject that is a little more close to home, uh, perhaps today in, in, in our country, than it normally we would think about it. And, uh, and they said, has something happened? Did, is something wrong? Did something? No. Except the fact that perhaps within the next few days, perhaps even as early as tomorrow, the Supreme Court of the United States, which I would remind you, it is not the Supreme Court really. It's just their name. There's a court above them. We need to remember that. But the Supreme Court of the United States, within the next few days, perhaps as early as tomorrow, may issue a ruling that either negates all of marriage law across this land as it has been not just in our nation's history, but for time immemorial, or it may uphold it. We don't know. And what the problem is is running out whether they uphold it or not or whether they strike it down or not. There's a deeper, more foundational problem than how we see what they do in these next few days. Now, I want to reassure you parents that this is a PG-rated sermon today, okay? I've carefully filtered, I hope, every word and every thought, and uh, so your children should be safe within the confines of this sermon. But what I want us to think about today is what's gone wrong? And what is the fundamental problem in our country? You know, it's easy for us to look at the, at the Congress or look at the president or look at, at the courts or whatever and say, boy, they have really gone awry. They have really gone afield. They have, they have made a mess of this place. 
But I would like to remind you that according to God's Word, it's not the Congress or the President or the courts that are responsible for the ethical well-being of a nation. It's not the Congress or the President or any other politician or any other judge or lawyer or jury or anything else that is charged with, with the ethical foundations of our country. But rather, it has been given to the church. The church is called to be an agent for supernatural change. And by supernatural change, I don't mean political advocacy. The church is not called primarily to run campaigns or get, or get out the vote for people, or, or whether you like them, or if you do like them, or against somebody if you don't like them. The, the church has never been that. Now, that doesn't mean that the church has not spoken to ethical and to pol- what have been deemed political issues in the past. As a matter of fact, had it not been for the church and it not been for the pulpits of, of this land back about 250 years ago, there would be no United States of America. It'd still be the colonies of Great Britain. It was the pulpit that declared freedom. It was the pulpit that said our freedom, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of whatever, our freedom is an inalienable right. It's not something that governments grant or take away, but our freedom is found in the the gifts of Almighty God. They are inalienable rights given to us by our Creator, by our God, and He is the only one who has the ability to give and take away. And if they're taken away, it's, it's because of His sovereign judgment, not because of a court or a president or a congress. But as I thought about this today, I, I couldn't help but reflect back to, to the arguments on the whole same-sex marriage issue before the Supreme Court that they'll be deciding on, and, and an exchange that took place between Judge Scalia and, and Ted Olson. I know Ted Olson, met him when I was in my days with the American Center for Law and Justice. He was a, a friend. He was on our side on most of the issues, and, and, uh, and I, I like Ted Olson as a, as a man. He's a nice guy. But this exchange was quite interesting. It said, Just, Justice Scalia said, I'm curious, when did it become unconstitutional to exclude homosexual couples from marriage? 1791? 1868, when the 14th Amendment was adopted? Sometimes, sometime after Baker, that's the case, where we said it didn't even rise, raise a substantial federal question. When, when, when did the law become this? Olson said, well, uh, when, uh, may I answer this in the form of a rhetorical question? When did it become unconstitutional to prohibit interracial marriages? When did it become unconstitutional to assign children to separate schools? Justice Scalia said, well, that's an easy question, I think, at least that for that one, at the time of the Equal Protection Clause was adopted. That's absolutely true, but don't give me a question for my question. I like that. When do you think it became unconstitutional? Has it always been unconstitutional? Mr. Olson says, it was unconstitutional when we as a culture determined that sexual orientation is a characteristic of individuals that they cannot control and that they, that and Justice Scalia interrupted, which Supreme Court justices are wont to do, and do often. I see, I see, but when did it happen? When did it happen? Mr. Olson said, well, there's no specific date in time. It is an evolutionary cycle. Now, that last phrase speaks volumes. Because that last phrase is the heart of Darwinian theory. 
Now, we tend to think of Darwinian theory as thinking only about the, the, the origin of the species. We, we think about Darwinian theory as only that, well, we came from one-cell microorganism organisms, you know, and they grew up and they sprang feet and they sprang this and they did that. And, and somewhere along this millions and billions and however many years, all of a sudden, at one point, they're sprang forth from either monkeys or fish. I'm not sure which it is, but it changes various times. We sprang forth a human being, and here was man. And we think about that as being the whole concept of Darwinian evolution, but I want you to understand, Darwinian evolution has a social side to it that's just as, just as scary, if you will, as the physical or biological side to it. And that's what Ted Olson is talking about here. We as a culture, we make our own determinations about what is right and what is wrong. And we as a culture are evolving. And by evolving, we are becoming better and more enlightened and more intelligent and, and all these things. We as a culture are evolving and doing great things with it. That would not surprise me if that were just the thought in the culture. Because the culture has fallen. The culture is always seeking its own desires and seeking what it thinks is best for itself. The culture is, is, is an antithesis to, to Christianity, quite honestly. And, and we can argue from now until the end of time, are we a Christian nation? Were we ever a Christian nation? Did we, uh, were we founded on Christian principles, which I believe we were? Are we a Christian nation today? We sure don't look like it in many ways, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But, but the point is this. We, we, are, we are not to be a culture in the church, in the people of God, that is evolving. I'm not surprised to see external culture evolving. I am disappointed, shocked, and, and grieved that that same, quote, evolutionary process seems to be taking place within the church. And that song that we sang, Behold Our God, to me, hits at the essence of it. It hits at the very heart of it. It's the fact that we no longer behold our God seated on his throne, adoring him, worshiping him, submitting to him in every respect. But rather, we have come even within the church to a point of saying, well, you know, I think I can tell God where we really ought to be today. I can give God counsel about how he ought to do things today. I can share with God my super intelligence of today and, and maybe give God a little insight that God doesn't have. Within the church, we have two groups of people. Basically, we have some of those who, who still see, recognize some authority of the Scripture. That is, they do see there is still a problem with sin. And, and they would be quick to say, well, certainly all types of fornication and whether it's opposite gender or same gender, it doesn't really matter. All of that is, is definitely sin. There's no doubt about it. Yet they want to come to this idea of Jesus having said, but you must love your neighbor. And they want to make that, you know, loving your neighbor, you can't tell them there's anything sinful about any kind of behavior. And so you just have to accept it. And the church is developed into that kind of idea sadly they've accepted it matter of fact they want to say that we're, we're talking about jesus commandment you shall love your neighbor as yourself but in really what they've done is they they've adopted and modified jesus commandment to really be more of the wiccan commandment or the wiccan idea and that neo-pagan religion of wicca which they say instead of love your neighbor as yourself they say do what you will so long as it does no harm and, of course, they're talking about immediate harm, face-to-face -face harm. As long as you're not hurting anybody else, do whatever you will. And that has become 
the theory of the world. That's become the theory of our culture. But sadly and tragically, it's even become more the idea within the church. Just do whatever you will, as long as you don't harm anybody, as long as it causes no harm. There's a second group within the church that have totally disregarded the authority of Scripture. They really have. They've embraced the idol of open theism. They've replaced the authority of Scripture with a picture of a God who changes his mind over time and thus changes himself over time. It can be no better illustrated than by one former evangelical pastor who made quite a splash a few years ago with his book about hell that says there is no hell, everybody's saved, to his more recent statements about this matter of, of, uh, of same-sex or same-gender marriage. Rob Bell said this, he said, What we're seeing now in this day is God pulling us ahead into a greater and greater affirmation and acceptance of our gay brothers and sisters. And we're realizing that God made some of us one way and some of us another, and that can be a beautiful thing. Now, I want you to understand, this is not an anti-gay message. I have friends, even family members, that are deceived by that sin. I have friends and family members that are deceived by the sin of adultery and fornication. I have friends and family members that are deceived by theft and, and many other sins. I'm not, this is not, matter of fact, I, I'm here to tell you this morning that we ought to be loving and reaching out and ministering to those who have embraced a, a, what the culture calls a gay lifestyle. We ought to be ministering to them and loving them and receiving them in order to share the gospel with them. Not joking and being crude and making negative remarks in that way. I want you to, you know, I, I've shared with you a little bit of it, but my, my whole view has changed in reading one book. It's in the book nook. You ought to get it and read it. A book entitled, The Unlikely Thoughts of a, no, no, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosera Butterfield. A radical, uh, a, a radical feminist a uh, lesbian professor who was teaching and antagonistic to the gospel, and one pastor cared enough to just write her a letter. He didn't condemn her. He didn't condone her. He just asked her some questions. And, and that letter burned in her heart, and God used that letter that she reached out and talked to him, and they began to, he and his wife began to have dinner with her and, and began to share things with her. She wouldn't go to church. She wanted nothing to do with that until over a period of about two years, finally, because of a pastor. I wouldn't have been that pastor. I'm going to be honest with you. I would, I would have said, there's no hope for her. She's too far gone. But because of a pastor loving her and caring and, and wanting to minister, she came to know Christ. She repented of her deviant lifestyle and sin, just like an adulterer ought to depend, repent of their deviant lifestyle and repent and sin. And, and she now is married to a pastor and a homeschooling mom. I mean, it's, it's just about as antithesis to what she was as you'll ever see. So this is not about that. This is about the church adopting the evolutionary social theory of the world. Isaiah talked about that. Look in Isaiah chapter 5 with me. That was all introduction, by the way. Now we get to the sermon. Now we get to the text, and that's the most important thing. Isaiah chapter 5. It's a long text, but I want to read it 
I don't want you to hear it. Start in verse 8 of Isaiah chapter 5. Woe! Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room. So they have to live alone in the midst of the land. In my ears, the Lord of hosts has sworn, surely many houses shall become desolate, even great ones and fine ones, without occupants. For ten acres of vineyard will yield only one bath of wine, and a homer of seed will yield but an ephah of grain. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. Their banquets are accompanied by lyre and harp, by tambourine and flute and by wine. But they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of His hands. Therefore my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge. And their honorable men are famished, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore Sheol has enlarged its throat and opened its mouth without measure. And Jerusalem's splendor, her multitude, her den of revelry and jubilant within within her descend into it. So the common man will be humbled. And the man of importance abased. The eyes of the proud also will be abased. But the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment, and the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. Then the the lambs will graze in their pasture, and strangers will eat in the waste places of the wealthy. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood. That is sin with the cords of falsehood. And sin as if with cart ropes who say, let him make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it, and let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. It's a mocking attitude. Woe to those who call good evil, call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble, And dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot, and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. On this account, the anger of the Lord has burned against His people, and He has stretched out His hand against them, and struck them down. And the mountains quaked, and their corpse lay like refuge in the middle of the streets. For all this His anger is not spent." But his hand is still stretched out. And he goes on and he talks about the horrors of God's judgment, the horrors of God's wrath that will be seen in that day. Now I want you to understand two things. One, the United States of America is not Israel. Isaiah is talking to Israel here. I know that because he says, my people, 
He's not talking, he's not talking to, to the United States of America. We are not God's new promised land. Although we might have thought of ourselves that way at one time, and it might have even been presented that way sometimes, we are not the new Israel in, in the United States of America. Israel was God's people. In our, in our context, in our understanding, God does still have a people. It's not a government. It's not a, it's not a land necessarily as much as it is his people who are bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ who are in his church who are his people in the church. And I think rather than this being a word just to the country or to the country, this is a word primarily to you and me who sit in church pews every Sunday and across this land. And we look out and we say, how can the world have changed so drastically? How could we have gotten to this point? Why, just 10 years ago, we wouldn't have thought we'd be here. Five years ago, we would have thought it's, it's a long shot that we would ever be there. And today, we find ourselves saying, what is happening? All these things are changing. Isaiah's dealing with the problem. He says, here's the problem. The word woe, by the way, is not him trying to stop his horse. The, the word woe is a, is a word of judgment. It's a word of judgment to God's people who are failing to, to live up to what they claim that they are. He says, first of all, woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there's no more room. He's talking about their rampant materialism. Materialism is everything. Getting what we want is everything. Having the best, having the most, having, having something that everybody else will look at us and say, wow, look what they've got. That's what he's talking about. Woe to you who are so caught up in rampant materialism that you're adding house to house to house and you, uh, until the point that you, you'll find yourself living in the middle of a, a land where there's nobody around you. You've isolated yourself, in many cases, even from the people of God. God says, in my ears... Many of these houses shall become desolate, even great ones and fine ones. They'll be without occupants. I've been back to where I spent about a little over 10 years in Orlando, Florida, and there were some fine houses there that are now sitting desolate. They, they were once owned by people, some of them who professed to be Bible-believing Christians who were in churches in Orlando, Florida, and their houses are sitting there empty now because they overextended themselves, if you will. Because that was more important to them than anything else. And, and Isaiah says rampant materialism will be a sign that you are moving in a way that God does not like or approve of. He judges. Or the second woe in verse 11, he says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink and who stay up late at night that, that wine may inflame them. Their banquets are, are dancing and happy and lyre and harp and tambourine and flute and, and wine. They are, there's a drunken pleasure-seeking. Just, just meet my needs, make me happy, make me feel good. But in that, he says, there's a practical atheism there because they're so involved in their own pleasure that they pay no attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of his hands. There's a practical atheism. You know, in Psalm 14.1, the psalmist said, the, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I want you to understand that's not a philosophical statement. That's not the philosopher who sits around and, and ponders the universe and says, oh, I just can't believe there's a God. There is no God. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying the fool has said in his heart, in the, in the 
uttermost part of his being, he lives like there is no God. He only lives for himself. He doesn't live for the glory of God. He doesn't live for the truth of God. He lives merely for himself to be satisfied and pleasured and, and made to feel good. And, and, and Isaiah says, listen, there's a problem with that. And God doesn't like that. So in verse 13, because of this practical atheism, my, my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge. They abandon God's truth. They abandon God's word. And, and their honorable men are famished, and their multitude is parched with thirst. So death will enlarge its throat. The place of the dead will enlarge its throat, and, and it will, will open up and swallow them. He's talking about people here who say, I want to I say I know Christ. I want to say I know the Lord. But yet their lives are lived in this practical atheism. Their decisions are made within people that are in the church. Their decisions are made not on what has God said or how will this glorify God or how will this honor God, but how will it make me feel? A lot of churches base their message on that concept. I got an interesting email yesterday, or Friday. It was from pastorsresources.org. Never heard of them. But they said, you know, there's a movie coming out on, around Father's Day that you can really take advantage of, and, and we'll give you, and I, I signed up, I want to see what they did. Uh, we will give you some sermons to preach around Father's Day that will relate to this movie. The movie is Man of Steel. It's about Superman. I love the first sermon title. I just couldn't bring myself to read it. But the first sermon title was, Jesus Christ, the first superhero. You know? If that's not blasphemy, I don't know what is. Jesus was not some man of steel. He was not some superhero. But listen, they said, listen, if you will advertise this in your community, because people are watching the movie, they'll come to hear what you have to say. And then you can preach this sermon about how Jesus was the real first superhero. I think one of the sacred cows we knew abandoned in the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century is entertainment sermons, entertainment-based sermons. Get back to the truth. But they, they just lack wisdom. They lack truth. They lack knowledge because they have abandoned the Word of God and moved into practical atheism. Well, quickly, yes, quickly, Verse 18 says, Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if it were cart ropes. Now, the picture there is, is maybe a little lost in translation, but basically what Isaiah is saying there, here are people who are involved in a defiant sinfulness. They're, they're pulling sin along and they're saying, Follow me. I, I'm pulling it. I'm dragging it. I'm, this, is what, this is what's really good in life. They're, they're, they're pulling sin and as though it were on cart ropes, as though they put their sin on a cart and they lay it out there for everybody to see and say, this is good, this is right. And they even say, let him, that is let God make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it and the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and may come to pass that we may know it. They're mocking God. They're saying, here's our sin. God, you want to do something about it? 
Show yourself if you are so powerful. Show yourself if this really is a, a disappointment to you or, a, or an abomination to you. Here, here's our sin, and we parade it. We make it known. Just show us. Show us your judgment. They, they mock God. God won't be mocked. They drag their sin as falsehood. I, I was amazed to see the headline on Wednesday. One of the last hopes I had was of the Church of England in England where they're debating the same issue, and the Church of England made a strong stand against it. And they issued a press release on Wednesday of this week that said basically, because our culture has changed so, because we realize that now a majority of the people favor same-gender marriage, we are withdrawing our opposition to it becoming the law of the land. It's the church. Sometimes I want to say that's the church, quote, end quote. Because it's not the church declaring the truth of God, declaring the word of God. 20, got to move quick. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's just a, that's a immoral perversion. This is right, this is wrong. No, let's reverse those. We'll say worship is wrong and, and, and blatant sinfulness is, is right. So we, we just replace the two. Listen, we've done that in the church. We've done that in other areas. Last night we stood here. I sat out there, and Brother Todd did a great job doing the marriage of, of Catherine and, and Spencer. And they, they stood here, and they, they, they vowed before God and before witnesses, of which I was one, to, to say, I will love you until death shall part us. I watched their hands very carefully because too many people stand and make that vow today with their fingers crossed. They didn't. And I, I say that figuratively, obviously. I mean, let's face it. The, the passage Brother Todd read in our Scripture reading from Hebrews chapter 13, let marriage be held in honor among all men. One church group in a denomination that I saw statistics for this week has lost more people, more members in the last year than the last 25 years combined because of the issue of saying right is wrong and wrong is right and light is dark and dark is light. You know, it's basically given in to this. And because of that, they, they, one of the people in that denomination said, you know, what we really need to do is just abolish marriage altogether. Just, just don't have marriage anymore. I mean, that's, that's sort of an antiquated thing. It's sort of an idea that has passed its time. You know, we've evolved after all. And now let's just don't have marriage. You can be with who you want to be for a while. If you decide you want to be with somebody else, you can be with somebody else. Or you want to be with two or three, be with two or three. Or if you want to be, if you, I, I mean, how far does that reasoning go? If you want to marry your family pet, go ahead. It's, it's crazy. The, the, the sin that is replaced for good. But here's the real problem. I think, I think, Isaiah's going in a reverse order here, by the way. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. They know it all. 
They know it all. Why, you want an answer? Just ask me. I have all knowledge. I have all wisdom. I'm, I'm smart. Go to Washington. Ask some of our representatives. Do you know how to solve? Oh, I know how to solve every problem out there. If it wasn't for those Democrats, I could do it. If it wasn't for those Republicans, I could do it. They know it all. You know, that's really what Paul was getting to in Romans chapter 1. I heard somebody say this past week in my hearing here at Grace, they said, you know, I think Romans chapter 1 is becoming a reality. And you know, the whole thing of the same gender marriage and all is probably what's going to bring us down. I hate to break this to you, but in Romans chapter 1, what Paul is saying is not that same gender marriage will bring us down. What Paul is saying is if we get to that point, we're already down. That's the final straw. It's the final thing. Men with men, women with women, doing things that are unspeakable, Paul says. He said, at that point, God gives them over to total and complete depravity. Now, it doesn't bother me. No, that's not true. Let me back up on that one. It bothers me that the culture has gone there. It's a concern of mine that the culture has gone there. But what what I really fear is that the church is going there. That the church is beginning to say, hey, live and let live. Do what you will as long as it does no one else any harm. What you do inside your own home is not anybody else's business. There's a limit to when that's true. That is true to a point, but not, not totally. I mean, what God has said is true. What God has said is right. And I know some will say, well, you know, God never, God never, uh, or Jesus on, in, in the Gospels never spoke about same-sex, same-gender marriage. God never spo- uh, Jesus never spoke in the Gospels about, you know, even homosexuality. He never mentioned it. He never said that in the Gospels that it was wrong to, to, to marry someone of the same gender. He, he just never said that was wrong, and that's true. He didn't. But he gave positive statements about marriage. You see, positive statements are just as strong as negative statements. And the positive statement he gave was, and for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, a feminine word there, shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, when we do premarital counseling, we spend a lot of time talking about what that one verse means. Shall leave his father and mother. That means the new marriage is to be the priority relationship. Shall cleave to his wife. That means it's to become a permanent relationship. And they shall become one flesh. And that carries with it a spiritual dimension, an emotional dimension, a mental dimension, and a physical dimension that cannot be accomplished in any other way except the way God planned it. But there's also a problem saying, well, Jesus never spoke against any of that. You know, Jesus never said this. No, but Jesus affirmed all of the truth of Scripture. And, and if you say, well, you know, we got a lot of red-letter Christians today who say, well, I, I really believe it if it's in the red letters. That's why I don't like red-letter Bibles. As I've told you, I've got one in front of me here, but it's just because the print's big enough I can read it. But, you know, I don't like red letters is not good. That's kind of like saying that's what's really important. The black letters, they're just there to kind of fill space. It's not true. We as a church believe that the Scripture, the Bible, is God's Word. 
It is God's truth to our generation. And God help us when the church stops standing on that truth. God help us when we start saying, well, you know, culture is just evolving and we need to evolve along with it. To my dying breath, I hope I resist that with every ounce within me. And say, God has spoken. And where God has spoken, man should stand in silence. Behold our God, seated on his throne. Who shall give counsel to God? Who can, who can tell him what to do? Who can, I mean, that is just a part of our, our culture, even within the church, of rampant, rampant libertarian free willism that says, I can do what I want to do. I'm capable, I can, and I will. And it doesn't submit to the truth of God's word. Where God has spoken, we need to do one of two things. We either need to keep our mouth shut, or we need to speak the same truth. Honestly, we need to speak the same truth. But if you can't do that, we would do well to not speak at all. When we live in a day where God's truth about marriage has been negated by heterosexuals just as much as homosexuals, when we live in a day where the marriage bed is not undefiled because there's rampant adultery and rampant promiscuity within our culture and sadly within the church, when we live in a day where the church will not speak God's truth, that marriage is one man and one woman for life. That's God's plan. That's God's purpose. Now, before you get all mad at me and say, well, I'm divorced and, and I had this circumstance, I understand there are circumstances. We live in a fallen world. And everything is not perfect. I, I've got a dear friend or several dear friends whose marriage has ended in divorce and, 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 and they didn't want it, but it happened. And I want you to understand, there's forgiveness and there's grace, but, but that, does not, that does not excuse the church from being faithful in proclaiming God's standard at every point. So yeah, there'll, there'll be failure. We are fallen. We are sinners. We who are Christians are sinners saved by God's grace, and by that grace we ought to stand strong, and it ought to cause us to build into the marriage rather than take away from the marriage. It ought to cause us to hold our marriage in honor before all men everywhere. It ought to cause us to think twice before we even slightly negate from that marriage vow. As Christians, there is a different world for us. And that we say, this is God's truth, this is God's word, and we will abide in it. We may fail, we may struggle, but we will not exchange the truth of God for a lie. And that's the first step that Paul talks about in Romans 1. They've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And that's what Isaiah says when Isaiah says they have become wise in their own eyes and clever in their own devices. As a church, and, and I know all we can, we've only got 300 people here or so, maybe a few more than that, but a small number. But the point I want you to see is, the point I want you to understand is, we must be faithful to what God has said, and we must call on others to be faithful. You need to be praying for the churches of the city, churches of Somerset, that they will take a stand for God's truth, not waffle on it, not, not try to so tickle the ears of man that they forget the truth of Almighty God. 
You'd be praying. You'd pray for me. I'm not beyond wimping out, to use the vernacular. I'm not beyond becoming fearful of man. But may we as a body fear God only. Not fear man, not fear attitudes, not fear culture, and not be afraid to speak the truth. I've got to be honest with you, we're coming to a day where that's not going to be easy to do. We're coming to a day where if you have any Christian principles, you're intolerant. Everything's tolerated except Christian principles. I find that kind of strange. But that's the day we're living in. That's the day you'll have to face on the job and in your community. God help us if we face that within the church. Isaiah says, listen, just to close, I've got to go to the next chapter, chapter 6. Israel is not in the best condition. And Isaiah says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, that was about 726 years before Christ, B.C. And Uzziah, for the most part, was a pretty good king. He died, and I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, exalted, lofty, exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood around him and above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. Go into hours on symbolism there, we won't. And and they called out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out. And while the temple was filling with smoke, then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. You see over here Isaiah saying, Woe to the culture, woe to the people of God. Here he says, "Woe, Woe to me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King. My eyes have seen the Lord, the Lord of hosts. We need a new dose of that kind of view of God. Woe is me. I'm not without sin. Woe is me. Isaiah expected to be disintegrated here, by the way. He just thought he was going to be standing there. He was going to disappear. And one of the seraphim flew over to the altar where there were burning coals, and he took one from the altar, and he, he went to Isaiah, and he touched his lips with the with the coal from the altar, with tongues. He touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. That coal from the altar, that coal from the altar is that cross for us. That cross, the the, the work that was done on that cross touches our lips and our life, and it cleanses us and forgives us. That is our altar. 2,000 years ago, that altar was established, it was fulfilled, and there's no altar. This is not an altar. This is the front of the church, Lord's Supper table, but not an altar. The altar is the cross. It was at the cross 2,000 years ago where the perfect sacrifice was given. And where when we come to Christ, we are cleansed and our sin is forgiven. But here's the thing. Then I heard a voice, verse 8, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Isaiah said, I've just been cleansed of my sin. I've just been forgiven of my sin. I just expected to disintegrate, and I didn't because of the grace of God. 
Then I said, here am I. Send me. Send me to a culture that is dying to take the truth. You see, we can't change this culture politically, but we can take the gospel and see it changed spiritually. And when spiritual reformation and spiritual revival comes to our land through the presentation of the gospel by God's people, maybe, just maybe, we will see some cultural reformation also. This is my word, God would say. You take it and apply it and abide in it if you are my people. Let's pray together.